What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 133 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. Uh, not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Beard, beard, beard. about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over the news, and then ask the question, should vegans advocate for genetically disenhanced animals? And the first thing we have to find out is, what is a genetically disenhanced <laughs> animal? Yes, I had not heard of it before you sent me some of these articles, Andy. But I'm very excited to have this discussion. We alluded to it last episode, and I think it's going to be a good one. I'll knock down, drag out philosophical debate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe we'll be totally on the same page. Uh, I think we're going to have some differences. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait. So first, Andy, have you been eating anything good? Yeah, you know, I got a chance to check out a new restaurant in New York. It's been open for about 11 days as of uh, when I went a few days ago. And it's called, I believe it's called Arata, but it might be some other pronunciation of that, A-R-A-T-A. It's in New York. And it's all, I will say, I guess, Japanese-inspired dishes, sort of of that nature. And really like the atmosphere of this place. Got to try a bunch of different dishes, and the two that really stood out, the the co-stars of the show, Paul, <laughs> if you will, the first was this spicy udon dish with Sichuan tempeh sausage, radish, Ooh. and cashews. So it's these nice, you know, big udon noodles in sort of this, this spicy, very creamy broth with uh, the tempeh sausage, which is just seasoned tempeh. They didn't, like, really do anything to it otherwise. But it was still very delicious. And I don't know, the flavor was just off the charts with this dish. Really enjoyed it. Thought the texture was great. But these the second dish that like totally blew me away were these tempura maitake mushrooms. And they were deep fried to golden crispy perfection. <laughs> oh my god. Sounds so good. And and the batter itself was very flavorful and it just worked so well. And they did not lose their crispiness over time while we were sitting there eating them. And the sweet soy sauce just worked really well with it. And that that is the dish that I will be dreaming of tonight, Paul. And I, I <laughs> wish I could go back and get some soon because it was truly that specific dish was truly outstanding. But yeah, that's a errata in New York City. And yeah, that's the most delicious thing that went in my mouth this week. That sounds delicious. I will be in New York tomorrow, Andy, but I will probably not go there. <laughs> Where are you going to go? Uh, we're going to go to that New York City Veg Fest ah. and and TBA for for the post Veg Fest dinner. But I'll definitely let everyone know next week. You're going to be on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. You're going to be a mere civilian. I know a peasant walking through the <laughs> the Veg Fest. Yes. All right. Well, let's get on to some follow-up. Paul, we recently covered a story that was about France banning meat and dairy terms being used to describe vegan versions of those items. Mm -hmm. Like 
meat-free chicken nuggets or soy milk or something like that, and that at some point, whenever this went into effect, there would be over a $300,000 fine for companies that did that. So really serious business there. And we got a really interesting email from Teresa, who wrote in, I'm not from France, but from its neighbor country, Germany, where it's by law not allowed to call plant milks milk. In the law, it basically says that a beverage is only allowed to be called milk if it comes from an udder, which is weird because coconut milk, on the other hand, is allowed to be called milk. You also wondered in this episode how they will call it instead. You know, we were kind of asking... Are they going to have to come up with some really interesting creative terms? And Teresa says, I can only speak for Germany, but here it is just called, for example, cashew drink or hafer, which means oat drink. Now that I think about it, it's kind of weird because drink isn't even a German word. (laughs) So, Paul, you know where I have heard the term drink used where you'd think they'd say milk? Where's that? Yoohoo. Huh. Yuhu is chocolate drink. That's what it says on the package. Is that a legal thing, do you think? I I guess Yuhu isn't really milk. It must be not enough dairy to be considered milk. That's funny. I've I've never thought about that nor would I ever think to think about that. Yeah, I remember seeing they were a, they were a sponsor on Warp Tour one year when I was when I was touring and doing that. Nice. And so there was an abundance of Yuhu around, and I think that's when I first noticed that it said chocolate drink and not chocolate milk, <laughs> and it just felt like some some like weird circumventing of their ingredients. But everyone I know would consider Yuhu chocolate milk. Yeah. Well, I guess it it worked out for them. So hopefully, it can work out for all these vegan vegan products that now can't use milk yeah well so it had me wondering like in the u.s how are various brands labeling themselves so i just did like a quick search of some of the major brands and so of course silk is one of the biggest names in that game maybe the biggest and they just label their soy milk as soy milk but like their their almond milk it just says almond on it there isn't even any sort of qualifier below it uh, you have the brand Pacific. They label theirs as almond non-dairy beverage. Mmm, t- delicious. <laughs> delicious non-dairy beverage. Dream just says almond beverage. And then so delicious, all of their things are labeled as either almond milk or soy milk. So honestly, maybe it's not even that big of a hurdle that people are already using these various terms. And I think people just sort of assume they see the package that says almond and maybe their brain is filling in the milk part, especially when they show, you know, like a creamy beverage being poured as part of the packaging or something. So maybe this just isn't really that big of a deal. Yeah, maybe not. And and it's funny because I know this is happening in France, but I'm imagining if it happened in the U.S., there'd be like the the dairy industry would be sending representatives to all the supermarkets and every time someone was like going through the aisle and was like oh i'm going to buy some almond milk there was a person that was like oh excuse me excuse me ma'am that's uh that's almond drink <laughs> i would i would uh, expect you to not refer that refer to that as as milk in the future thank you yes this is but, paul's future <laughs> yeah but, but but you're but i mean i i was just thinking cuz you're you're absolutely right andy i feel like most people for most people, almond milk and soy milk and all those things are such a regular, they're such a standard product now that most people know what it is without having to read the name of it, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, I don't know. I mean, like, drink, I guess. 
I guess that could just work. I think beverage works. I think as long as the main ingredient is sort of very put up front and then they have in small text, you know, alternative non-dairy like beverage drink or something underneath it. Yeah. Probably that big of a deal. Do you think it's it's going to be harder for for like meat and cheese companies? Oh, that's a good question. I, well, I wonder if like for some products like the chicken nugget, guardian chicken tenders or chicken nuggets, I wonder if they can just say tenders or nuggets and something like that. Like they don't need the chicken. And I think that would have the same effect that we were kind of just referring to where I think most people would fill in like, okay, I know what this is. This is a chicken tender. If it just said in big words, tenders, like if it said, and then in small words above it, like soy, soy tenders or something like that. I, I think honestly, I feel like the less words the better like non-dairy beverage i it almost think is too too clunky and and if you could just give people less and have them fill it in themselves i i i think personally from a completely non psychological standpoint for or from a standpoint of i have no psychological background i think that would be the the best move is is to just let people fill in because people i think most people they know what they're looking for. They know the products that they normally get, and, and they know the keywords that they see when they get those products. Yeah, and honestly, I think having a picture of the the food item on the packaging probably also goes a really long way of people just sort of associating certain types of food with that particular product. So, yeah, maybe it won't be a big deal at all. And I feel like other products like you who have – there are probably tons of examples of products that have been doing this forever – where where it's kind of like they, they they circumvent saying that they're not the actual thing, but they're implying that they're the thing, like Yoohoo being chocolate milk, but it's not actually chocolate milk. Like I'm there's a I always see when I drive to work, I always see this big sign outside this this convenience store that's like fruit drink. And I'm like, okay, it's not juice, <laughs> it's fruit drink. And I feel like that's the same thing where it's probably they don't have enough actual juice in there to be to to or they don't have enough actual fruit in there to be called juice so they call it fruit drink instead so i I feel like companies have gotten by have have been able to find loopholes around this stuff and and i'm sure this is not going to be the thing that takes down the vegan world (laughs) probably not i'm wondering if any listeners out there have encountered any weird examples of this like like chocolate drink or I remember, you know, being in college and buying a lot of frozen pizza and and there's like descriptions of things that are like chicken wings that are actually like like reconstituted non-chicken chicken part type like you have these like really long descriptions underneath the thing. So, yeah, I mean, if if the non-vegan products can get away with that, I don't think it's going to be a huge deal for the vegan products. We will persist. <laughs> yes. All right, let's move on to the news, Paul. So we did a big news roundup last week, and you noted at the end that it was mostly just a lot of really bummer news. Mm-hmm. So I I did some, some work, and I found some positive news stories, Paul. Hooray! <laughs> so strap in. Get your smile face ready. Andy, when I'm talking to you, my smile face is always ready. <laughs> All right, so this first one's coming to us from OneGreenPlanet.org. All the links to these articles will, of course, be in our show notes at thebeardvegans.com. And this came out May 18th. And the title is, By SeaWorld, Attendance to San Diego Park has dropped the most out of all theme parks in the U.S. 
That's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, the article starts off by saying this one particular San Diego SeaWorld has had the biggest drop. Uh, but, Paul, do you want to read, read a little bit from this article for us? Sure. The article says, both the San Diego Marine Park and its sister park in Orlando saw a double-digit drop in attendance, despite the top 20 general theme parks throughout the U.S. and Canada seeing an increase in attendance of around 2.3%. So it's not that people aren't going to amusement parks, they're just not going to SeaWorld. Company-wide, SeaWorld attendance fell by 9%, with 732,000 fewer visitors compared with the same quarter last year. This amounts to a revenue drop of almost $438 million, which is around a 10% loss. Damn. So when I first read this, I was worried because it clarified it, but at first I was worried, like, saw a double-digit drop in attendance. I was like, does that just mean... 57 less people went this year than last year i was like that's not really that much (laughs) but i'm assuming it means percentage wise percentage wise yes yes i know the the math lover and you really needs that clarification but then also like that's ambiguous as well because a double digit drop in attendance could mean 10% 10% of people less or 99% less people. But I'm looking at the article right now and it says in San Diego, it was a 13.9% slide in attendance. It seems yeah. which, which, you know, saying double digit kind of bolsters it a little bit. I mean, any drop is good, but just, just say the actual number. 732,000 fewer visitors though, Paul. That's good. That's good. I'm just saying, don't, you know, don't, don't selectively choose which numbers you want to, you want (laughs) to reveal to us. Yeah. But still good. Still good. Nonetheless. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think this is a a trend that we've been seeing. So even though it's like a percentage less, I think that we've been seeing their attendance just going down, down, down ever since Blackfish was released. So I don't know. I I feel like we're just waiting for the the final blow to be struck against SeaWorld and they're going to go under. Much yeah, I think they're they're following uh, off the heels of the Ringling Brothers shutdown. I think, I think you're right, Andy. Yeah, I mean, and and just like with because Ringling took out the elephants, and that was sort of their final gasp to to remain alive. And and now we know that SeaWorld is removing the orcas, at least from the San Diego location. I forget the exact timeline. I know we've covered this story a billion times, different angles, but. I'm wondering if that's kind of like it's yeah it's the same thing like they got rid of their their star mascot essentially and now it's just a matter of time. It's the nail in that vegan coffin. Yeah, and I know like the in the in all these articles the the CEO is quoted as talking about making efforts to revive the park and all that and I don't know, it'll be interesting to see what they can do to try and turn public opinion around, but honestly, if they just turned into like a nice water park with some roller coasters or something That's what I was about to say, because I was going to say it seems different from uh, circuses, because with circuses, you can have like all human circuses. You can watch people doing like six stunts and stuff, and people will go and see that. Mm -hmm. So circuses can kind of adapt in that way. And I was about to say, Andy, like, I don't think SeaWorld can adapt in that way. But if they make it into a sick uh, uh, water park, I would I would be down with that. Sick water park, bro. 
sick water park or because <laughs> in my mind i was thinking like instead of you know like dolphins flipping in the air underwater you just have like people just doing like synchronized swimming <laughs> just hundreds of thousands of people going to see synchronized swimming not to not to poo poo on the synchronized swimming community it's it's very impressive oh paul i can picture the headlines now <laughs> bearded vegans rally listeners against synchronized swimming <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I think that I think we I think that's good news, right? It's all good news. It's all good news. <laughs> so I don't know. I would say that's pretty good news, Paul. Me too. I think it, I don't know. I guess it shows that like public can make ethical, more ethical choices once they learn new information. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope that eventually that translates to people adopting a vegan lifestyle. Yeah. It's the foot in the door, Paul. It's the yeah. long game. Long con. Yeah. All right. So found a couple interesting articles talking about a global animal testing ban. And I think that in recent years, we've started to see a few countries start to ban animal testing within their country. And that includes the UK, which actually banned animal testing for cosmetics Uh, in 1997 and then the european union banned it in 2013 and it's actually the european union that's sort of leading the rallying cry for this for this push right now so got found an article at cosmeticsdesign-europe.com where i get all my vegan news Uh, European Parliament votes to support a push towards a global animal testing ban. So it's just that. Supported by 620 MEPs, the resolution is set to guide civil servants and member governments of the European Commission and the European Council to advocate to the UN on an end to animal testing in cosmetics globally. And this resolution was backed by both the Body Shop and Cruelty Free International. And it kind of had me like wondering like how... Like, how can the EU enact a global ban? Can't they just sort of dictate to their own jurisdiction? Found another quote from uh, Michelle Thu, who is the CEO of Cruelty Free International, at a plant-based news article that said, The goal is now for a resolution to be passed at the UN to enforce harmonized rules that will be good for industry, animals, and consumers who want to see an end to the cruel, unnecessary, and outdated practice of animal cosmetics testing. So, you know, even the U.N. couldn't necessarily enforce this, but but getting a U.N. resolution passed would certainly go a long way. And especially for, like, setting an example for other countries to do it. Uh, reading some analysis of this, a lot of people think the, the Chinese market would be the hardest one to get on board with this. But I guess only time will tell. But I don't know. I find this encouraging. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if, if they can set the, like, the culture or the standard of what's accepted even if it doesn't actually impact those other specific countries, maybe it will encourage them to kind of follow along suit. I'm interested though, Andy, do you think that this has any implication for animal testing not related to cosmetics or do you, because at least in the U S I feel that there is a push for, there's a, there's a shift in attitudes going on that, animal testing specifically for cosmetics is bad. I I feel that that culture shifting. Mm-hmm. I don't feel it as much for 
non-cosmetic related animal testing though do, do you think that that's gonna follow or is that like a completely different different beast that we are going to have to to tackle hmm that's an interesting question and it also yeah it makes me wonder why i mean i guess the the easy answer to why people are more concerned with or see or see at least this issue gets more visibility with the cosmetics testing versus say medical testing is that medical testing is often viewed as sort of this this human life saving step in a procedure of getting medicine approved for for market whereas cosmetics is sort of a very frivolous un you know quote unquote unnecessary thing and so maybe it just seems it's a lot easier to get the testing on the things that are frivolous like done away with i think that the medical animal testing for a lot of people a lot of people think about it when when a lot of people think about it they literally just think oh well if i get sick i'll need to do this or this is necessary or when one of my loved ones gets sick this is necessary and and i think a lot of people still view it as this necessary thing that needs to be done for themselves versus like you said andy cosmetics is more of like a frivolous thing where it's it's not this quote life or death situation that people are being put in so i think unfortunately we are still a ways away from banning animal testing related to medicine and and any sort of medical animal testing but i could see the cosmetic one going through and then maybe i could also see like just the rules on for animal testing becoming more strict and and we actually kind of will get into some of this stuff a little bit later with some examples but i know for instance when i was in when i was in college and when i was doing research and i did research where i had to survey high school students and you need to go through like a big procedure where you kind of document what kind of testing you're going to be done and and it, it, you then you need to send this test. You need to send what you're going to do to be approved. I think it's like IRB approval. I, th- I think that's what it was. And they either say like, yes, this is okay to do. Or they say like, no, this has some potential harmful effect for the student. So you need to change this around and then we'll approve it. So you need to get this approval before the survey, the, like the testing can be done. The experiment can be done. And there actually is like a whole one for if your testing involves animals as well. And I'm sure that it's not as strict as if you're interacting with humans or specifically children, but maybe even if we don't see outright banning animal testing, we'll see stricter laws for that. This is very welfare sounding of me, but I think that that's what probably will happen before an, an outright ban of animal testing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's entirely possible. I also wonder if the sort of the, I guess I'll say popularity of the animal testing for cosmetics issue has been in in part due to companies like Lush or the Body Shop that that have taken sort of public stances against the animal testing and the fact that it's sort of associated with with like a a shop that's associated with a, a lifestyle and a look and like beauty bloggers and all of those things there's not really an equivalent of that for like the medical world there's not like 
I don't know. Maybe there is, Paul, and I haven't seen them. But you know, there's not YouTube channels dedicated to people trying out different medications and doing tutorials and all that stuff. I'm, I'm sure there are people talking about their experiences, but I doubt there's anyone that's like, this week I'm going to try this medication for cancer, and this week I'm just going to try one for headaches. And you know, and like, there's not like a culture around that in the same way that there is around makeup. You're right. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. So maybe I, I feel like. In this YouTube-driven war- world, that's probably bound to happen eventually. So maybe when that stuff kind of becomes more popular and more prevalent, then people will start to see like, oh, I can do this thing without using this animal-tested medicine. And then like maybe that will start to shift the culture. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I don't know, I feel like it's it's more about getting things to no longer be tested on animals before asking people to not use something that was tested on animal that might be some sort of vital medication for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But I guess overall, you know, I was looking for numbers. Said about, you know, according to a number of sources, it's generally in the ballpark of 100 million animals are used for animal testing each year. So if we can knock that out, it'd be pretty significant. And side note, IRB stands for Institutional Review Board. I I just figured I'd throw that in there instead of just saying an acronym and never following up on it. (laughs) You could have said anything and I would not have questioned you, Paul. (laughs) But I was right. I pulled out that acronym from like five or six years ago that I I haven't used it since then. But go me. Well, I'm very impressed with you, Paul. Thank you, Andy. I'll give you a gold star the next time I see you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Shall we move on to this next one? All right, so our last news story is coming to us from MSN, which is titled Republican Farm Bill Amendment Threatens Animal Rights. And this was published just on May 17th, but it's referring to an amendment that's been around since, I believe, it was introduced in February. But uh, let me just read a little bit from this article. An amendment to the Republican House Farm Bill could end state laws that protect against puppy mills selling sick and abused dogs, the sale of horse, cat, and dog meat, and shark finning. The add-on to the bill, called the Protect Interstate Commerce Act, was approved by the House Agriculture Committee last month and will be debated on the House floor alongside the rest of the bill. It has become the subject of increasingly outspoken opposition from animal welfare groups, Proposed by Congressman Steve King, the amendment would stop states from regulating agricultural products that are created or sold in other states. Its effect could be to end bans on the sale of cat, dog, and horse meat in states like California, Georgia, Mississippi, and Oklahoma, and shark fins and foie gras in other states. King's amendment would also undo state laws that ban puppy mills from selling inbred, abused, and sickly dogs to pet stores for resale. Additionally, the amendment could stop regulations that prevent wood with invasive pests from crossing state lines, could challenge rules to the use of dangerous pesticides, and could end regulations around labeling laws for products like tobacco, alcohol, and artificial sweeteners. The bill could also end statewide bans on the use of gestation crates, metal enclosures so small that animals cannot move, for pregnant pig and egg-laying hens. So I was I was kind of wondering how one particular amendment could do all of that, Paul. It mm-hmm. seems like it's a pretty powerful amendment. And so I found this great article actually over at modernfarmer.com, which really sort of explains, like, what is this amendment and what could it do? So let me just read that before we get into discussing this. 
The proposal would hinder any state or local government's ability to regulate its own food and farming practices. How so? Currently, if the people of one state decide that they want stricter regulation on, say, animal welfare, pesticide use, child labor laws, support for local farmers, or greenhouse gas emissions from farms, they can vote that regulation into being. The Protect Interstate Commerce Act would prohibit any of those regulations that also apply to products from out of state, most of which do. One example would be California's law requiring that products containing anything on a list of carcinogens to be labeled as such. Currently, if a producer in, say, Texas makes a product containing one of those carcinogens, it can only sell in California if it has a label, according to California's rules. This proposal would negate that law. So essentially, it's like saying if California has a law that said only cage-free chicken flesh can be sold here, then if you want to sell your chicken from South Carolina to California, it would have to adhere to their standards to be sold there. And this mm-hmm. act is saying that like you can't enforce that on a product from another state. So they would like have to sell this. They couldn't, they couldn't ban the chicken from South Carolina from coming into California to be sold. Andy, that article from modern farmer, I couldn't get the, I, I, I did not read the entire article. So this is my fault, but is the tone of it that this is a good thing or a bad thing this the the protect interstate commerce act were they putting it forward as like oh this is gonna this is gonna be a good thing or were they putting this forward like this is a potentially dangerous thing because i feel like this is only good for like the 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 ceos of the company it's only good as a way to like cut corners and make more money but i don't feel like this is a good thing for just farmers in general for the workers of the companies like i feel like this is dangerous for those people yeah i mean the vibe i was getting from this modern farmer article was that they weren't super enthusiastic about it because like obviously this is bad for the animals but also for like the the workers it seems like now if there's any regulations about like hey let's not be shitty to our to our employees in one state another state could be like well now we don't have to we don't have to adhere to that anymore and we could be even shittier to our our employees yeah i mean it, it kind of creates i believe one article i read talking about this a race to the bottom like essentially it would be like what state can have the worst possible practices and then they can outsource to everywhere else and they can underprice everyone else because they have like the worst labor laws and no like welfare regulations or whatever it might be so it seems like it could only be horrible for for everyone and and the one example that i read that was saying that you know Various types of wood not being allowed to get, like kindling, firewood, whatever, getting carried from one state to the next. And they have those regulations because they don't want woodborne pests from that are fine in one area but would be like an invasive species in another, cause some big problem from being transported across state lines and how this would potentially nullify that. And so it seems like it's just really horrible and really dangerous on a number of different fronts. But certainly it would not be good for animals because, you know, as much as you and I are not 
we're not the big champions of the cage-free eggs and, and all of bang gestation crates. Uh, not that we don't like things getting better for animals, but because we think, uh, generally speaking, we're more fans of the vegan education aspect and creating a vegan population. But it wouldn't be good for animals if all of a sudden these it, these regulations could just get totally ignored. It, it honestly sounds like it's a recipe for some like uh, apocalyptic event to happen. Like how, like you were saying, it's like a race to the bottom. It's like how bad can we make things until you know until the. Like, for instance, like the invasive pests crossing state board, borders and then like destroying all the, the trees in, in one state or something like that. Like, it just seems like a recipe for something really, really bad to happen, because if there's no like regulations on this sort of stuff, like who what do they care if they if they infect some other states, all of their, you know, wood or something like that? Yeah, I don't think it really bodes well for anyone. And, you know, so, Paul, this actually reminded me of the opposite of something else that we've talked about. I forget the exact bill that it was, but it was that, you know, in Massachusetts, they were working to pass the the cage-free egg thing, and that if it went into effect, that would mean that anyone trying to sell their eggs in Massachusetts would have to sell cage-free eggs, Mm -hmm. and that this was sort of this like backdoor way into other states that that would not be as likely to pass this specific measure. Yeah. And we thought that that was actually like a really clever technique that it's sort of a way to get a state that like maybe Iowa that is very sort of alt- agriculturally dominated. And that's where Steve King who introduced this amendment is from. It would, it would force them if they want to do business with certain states to start to implement regulations that Iowa itself would probably never implement, at least not in any near future. Yeah. And this is the opposite of that. This is this is wiping that out and saying that even if your state has passed a measure saying only cage free eggs can be sold in this state, then all of a sudden it's it's seen as them imposing their will on another state, and Iowa could be totally fine selling their non cage free eggs, their caged eggs, to Massachusetts. So I feel like especially from that regard, it would be a negative thing. Because again, even if we're not super into welfare reforms, they could drive up the price of animal products. They could, you know, there's like a number of things that it could do. And of course, like at least some slight alleviation of pain, like I'd rather that happen than not, even if it's not where I spend my time advocating, you know? So I think in this specific regard, this amendment would be really bad. Yeah, to to me, it's like, it's a, like a gross display of greed and capitalism. Like I'm interested to see how they're even defending this on the house floor b- besides just being like, Hey guys, we'll make more money if, if we do this. So let's do it. Like, I, I don't, I don't know how, how else they would say like, this is a good thing. Well, I think that part of the argument is that it's actually upholding States rights and that, that by doing something like what with Massachusetts with the egg the cage free egg bill there, that's like overstepping the rights of that state because it's all of a sudden imposing their will in other states. So you know he's a, a Republican that put it forward, and they're big on the individual states' rights. So that is kind of the angle that this whole bill is taking. I guess, but I feel like I feel like in, it's taking it's going so f- like the opposite end 
of of that. Like, it's not just saying like, oh, let's try to get rid of that thing. It's saying like, let's take this to the opposite extreme and make it so that. And and this kind of, I mean, again, I know I've said this a few times, but I feel like this is the this is the whole attitude of everything that the Trump administration puts forward is like, let's get rid of any sort of regulations at all and let's let these giant corporations just run wild and do whatever they want to do. Yeah. That's that's just what it seems like time after time is is the vibe that I'm getting and this is just another example of that and it really sucks. It's gross. Yeah, I mean it certainly seems sort of the epitome of the worst of capitalism for sure. Mhm. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess if this is something that concerns you, contact your your local representative and make sure they're going to oppose this you know this is actually something this isn't the first time it's come forward though paul he initially introduced it in 2013 and it failed um but a lot of analysts are saying the political climate is so different now to which i would agree Mm -hmm. and that it does feel like something like this could get passed thanks for thanks for throwing this real bummer of a news story right at the end of our (laughs) discussion right at the tail end Sorry, Paul. So, yeah, I don't know. S- stay on it. We'll keep people updated on this. You know, the, I think the Modern Farmer article we read s- seemed pretty doubtful that this would actually go through because uh, it's a pretty big violation of sort of the, the oversight that the federal government's allowed to have. So it's kind of like people are coming at it from two different angles with, like, the same argument there. But I don't know. I, I feel like anything could happen these days. Anything is possible. So before we move on into our main discussion, we got a couple shout outs to give to our new Patreon donors. So thank you so much to Jennifer C. And Jessica G. For donating to the Bearded Vegans Patreon page. Thank you very, very much. And of course, if you would like to become a Patreon donor or give a one-time donation, you can head over to thebeardedvegans.com slash Beardo, B-E-A-R-D-O, where you can find all the info about that. Yeah. And, you know, Paul, we're, we're a little more than halfway through May, so that means we got to be putting out our May bonus episode. And it should come out just a day or two after this one does. We're going to record it in between the time we record this and when we release the episode. So be looking for that, and I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, barring some cataclysmic event, it should be in the Patreon feed in the next couple days. So thank you to everyone that has become a new Patreon donor and all those that have been keeping us going for the last couple months, uh, helping make the podcast more accessible and sustainable. So thank you. All right, let's move on to this main discussion. Paul, it's been a minute since we've had a nice philosophical discussion where we sound like like philosophy 101 majors fumbling our way through some intense philosophical issue, and we're mm-hmm, going to do it mm-hmm. again today. You know, it's funny. I, I think I mentioned this in a very, very early episode, like probably, I would say in the double digits, Andy, so that could be <laughs> 10 to 99, but I... I one time when I was in when I was at in college, I attended this like philosophy seminar thing that happened where it was this guy that was visiting the school and basically did a whole spiel on why it's it's okay to eat meat, why it's okay to eat animals, why it's ethically okay. And I wish so badly that 
I could go to that again and I could attend that now because I thought that I did bring up some good points then, but I feel like after having all these discussions we've had, I'm more suited to debate this person who, you know, has the the tools of probably a master's or PhD in philosophy behind him, backing him. But I don't know. I just wish so badly that I could go to that again and I think I would be able to to say I would be able to speak better at it than I am right now or than I was then. But yes, maybe sometime before you die, time travel will be perfected. And then your 65 to 70 year old self can go back and totally dominate that 20 year old (laughs) and just like kick him in the shins or something like just (laughs) go back there, kick him in the shins and then travel back to the present. Yeah, and just make sure you say, so there, before you disappear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get down to it, Paul. So let's start this off with a quote. I think this is a a pretty famous quote within animal rights circles. And this was said by Jeremy Bentham in 1789, way long time ago. And the quote is, the question is not, can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? You've heard that one before? I don't think I have, Andy. What? <laughs> Podcast canceled. Well, I don't know. I see this one like all the time. And essentially it's 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 a quote that's used to say it doesn't matter if they can attend a college or drive a car or do the exact same things that human do. Like all that really matters for us to give animals moral consideration is ask like can they suffer? And if they're able to suffer and feel this pain that it's our our moral and ethical duty to do our best to not cause that pain. So here, then, we have this case of a University of Oxford student named Jonathan Latimer who saw that question and said, hmm, maybe if I can just take the suffering out of that equation, then we won't even need to care about these animals. Mm-hmm. So what we have is this essay, which was the winner of the Oxford Hero Prize in Practical Ethics undergraduate category, which is titled, Why We Should Genetically Disenhance Animals Used in Factory Farms. And this, was, this came out on, on March 8th of 2018. And so this essay begins by outlining all of the, the many problems with factory farming and the immense suffering that it causes animals. And then it poses the solution of genetic disenhancement. So let me read a little bit from the intro of this, this essay. Disenhancement is a genetic modification that removes an animal's capacity to feel pain. Scientists hope to be able to do this without inflicting any pain at all. So disenhancement promises to reduce suffering in factory farmed animals by removing their capacity to feel pain caused by their terrible environment. So, Paul, before we actually dig into the content of this article, my first question, of course, was, well, is this just like a weird, futuristic, far-fetched thing is this not even worth talking about because it could never actually be a possibility? Is there any precedent set? Have people done experiments like this in the past? And you looked into that. So, so what do you think? What's like sort of the groundwork for making this sort of argument? Well, it's interesting because for a while, Andy, we were just kind of rummaging over this, this essay and then a couple other articles that were kind of covering this essay. But upon you know, some deeper research and not that deep because it wasn't too hard to find, but we've, we, we both kind of found that other people have done 
similar things as this. They've even used the word disenhancement before. And it's been going on for, for decades at this point that, that people have either theorized about it or tried to put some practices into place that while maybe technologically different from what Jonathan is putting forward like the ideas behind it are still there and i feel like with the technological advancements that we have now i i think that it could be more of a of a reality but basically i'm sure it probably goes back before this but one of the first uh inklings of disenhancement i found dates back all the way to 1981 when james v craig who was a poultry researcher he kind of Sounds like a real turd, but he kind of basically, (laughs) he kind of said like, oh, I hate the, he's like, he dismissed the word mutilation when, when talking about, when talking about the the terrible stuff we do to animals, uh, to, to produce them, to produce these, these products. But he was defending removing portions of hen's beaks and basically he just said, like, this is, we need to do this for the welfare of the whole group so that the chickens or the hens don't peck each other to death or, or hurt each other or mutilate each other. And even though this isn't the disenhancement that Jonathan is referring to, it does kind of stem from, like, how can we modify these animals? And I'm using the word modify, but of course it's really something gross and disgusting and modify is is a too pleasant of a word for that but how can we change these animals how can we modify them so that production is is better so that so that for the betterment of this product that we're trying to produce and and paul you know some some might say that it's for like you're sort of framing it as it's for the benefit of the production but someone might sort of twist that around and say it was also for the benefit of the chicken. Like we're, we're removing their beaks so they don't peck at each other and kill each other. And it's, it's for their benefit. I think someone could even twist it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this person was probably not concerned with that. But I think you're absolutely right that someone could make that argument. So that was all the way back in 1981. In 1993, there's this guy, Robert Burris, and he kind of... Although he didn't have necessarily a, uh, a a plan for this, he mused that the future of egg and meat production would just be, you know, like like brainless chickens kind of hooked up to heart and lung machines, and just just all of the the kind of unnecessary organs of the chickens would be removed, so that it was just the the, the portions of the chicken that we need to to kind of crank out these eggs for the egg production. And that was kind of his idea of what the, the future of egg production would be. So again, it's not him kind of putting forth any technological, like anything definitive, but kind of musing that this is what the future is going to be. So again, it's just kind of someone putting forward, like, what can we do? What can we do to these animals to make them to make it more efficient for the production of this? And and like you were saying, you could then argue and Jonathan, the author of the essay, would definitely argue that this is also better for the animals. To me, it kind of seems like both these people are coming from the standpoint of how can we make production more efficient? That was in 1993. But actually, in 1991, I found this other article from 
upc-online.org, which is the United Poultry Concerns. Andy, are you familiar with that organization? Yeah, it's headed up by Karen Davis. They've been around for a very long time. Okay. Well, at least since 1991, because that's when this article came out. This this was kind of an investigation that UPC did at the California Polytech State University because they had caught wind that, and again, this is in 1991, students were doing tests on chickens where they would kind of, they would insert these red contact lenses into the chicken's eyes that put a, a like a red tinge on their vision and supposedly calm them down. And the study was supposed to be like, Oh, chickens are less stressed out when they, when they have these red lenses. And if they're less stressed out, they won't peck at each other and they won't, they'll, it'll be better for the, the production again. But uh, like what UPC found, what it was, it was actually just this real, real cruel experiment because the lenses that they were putting in were were not good for the chickens and and there was they, they interviewed one veterinarian who said the red plastic lenses are at the very least uncomfortable uncomfortable for the chickens these red plastic lenses also appear to cause corneal ulcers in the worst case these ulcers can rupture and lead to blindness pain always is a significant component of corneal ulcers or ruptured eyes so yeah. UPC basically found that that this was just this real real cruel animal study that was going on but again it it's all linked back to this like okay the issue is that in our ridiculously cruel practices of how we raise chickens right now the chickens are because they're in such confined areas they're pecking at each other and they're they're bothering each other so how can we reduce that how can we we make them not do that and this was just another example of that which i would argue is is just as cruel as like the the debeaking if it's going to cause these corneal ulcers and and potentially blindness in the chickens although jonathan would argue maybe the blindness is a good thing but more on that uh, later jonathan's not the only one jonathan is not the only one because actually in 1999 some danish researchers and then this this art this research was then covered in the late 2000s by paul b thompson both of them argued that that chickens should be basically intentionally blinded or they should be kind of they they found like a strain of chickens who were blind and they were they argued that that strain of chickens should be bred just to 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 produce completely blind chickens because these chickens you know quote don't mind being crowded as much together as chickens who can see so i wonder how they determine that did they have some sort of stress meter on the birds i bet it's just you know it's like observational things maybe they they track like how many times did a chicken peck another chicken and that that sort of stuff but i guess they could just yeah use the mortality rate yeah and and then quickly the last example i have is from 2002 where some scientists developed featherless chickens which uh, according to these scientists reduced animal suffering they said firstly the death rate of birds from overheating will drop and secondly the birds will be more comfortable because they will suffer less from the heat which seems like the same point <laughs> i don't know why that needed a first and a secondly if, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so so all these examples i feel like aren't as extreme as what Jonathan is putting forward in this essay, but it's certainly 
all fund all falls under the category of how can we somehow change something about the chickens to either either for some would say the benefit of the chickens or for the benefit of the production of eggs or chicken flesh or whatever you're producing. Yeah, it seems like Jonathan's argument is sort of the first that's really explicitly done in favor of the animals. Like, I'm sure Jonathan wouldn't argue that the disenhancement would be for the benefit of the factory farms, but just for the animals specifically. So that's probably like a noted difference between them. And actually, but yeah, this this like topic has been around even just in sort of animal rights circles. I found this interview over at Salon.com, which was just titled The Practical Ethicist, an interview with Peter Singer, who, of course, you know, wrote Animal Liberation. This was 2006 and uh, was asked, what if it were possible to genetically engineer a brainless bird grown strictly for its meat? Do you feel that this would be ethically acceptable? And Singer replied, it would be an ethical improvement on the present system because it would eliminate the suffering that these birds are feeling. That's the huge plus for me. Follow-up question was, what if you could engineer a chicken with no wings so less space would be required? He responded, I guess that's an improvement too, assuming it doesn't have any residual instincts like phantom pain. If you could eliminate various other chicken instincts, like its preference for laying eggs in a nest, that would be an improvement too. So so this isn't even just coming from some random scientists or people trying to improve their industry. Even people like Peter Singer say this could be a good thing. Yeah. And I, I'm sure... I would I, I I shouldn't say I'm sure. I would imagine he's coming at this or he's answering these questions f- in the same way that you know we would answer these welfare questions which is like sure if you're just giving me these two options of have the chickens free range or have the chickens in these small cages. Yes, we would choose the one which is less suffering, but I feel like ultimately that is not that's not what we would want, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I with with Singer, it's tough to tell because I don't know. I don't always, <laughs> I don't always agree with old Singer there. But anyway, so that's sort of that's sort of a, a brief and and probably very incomplete history of this this type of thinking and attitude and experimentation being done on animals so far. So that brings us up to Jonathan's article here: why we should genetically disenhance animals used in factory farms. So Jonathan's essay. It basically takes the form of of surmising what the three main objections to doing this genetic disenhancement could be, and then sets to sort of knock down each of those arguments. So I'll just read those three arguments real quick here. One, disability is intrinsically bad. Disenhancement causes disabilities for animals, therefore disenhancement is bad. Two, factory farming is an immoral process independently of the pain it causes, Disenhancement does not change the process of factory farming. Therefore, disenhancement is not a solution to the immorality of factory farming. And three, furthermore, disenhancing animals may support or benefit the factory farming industry economically. We should be encouraging the decline of factory farming. Therefore, we should not disenhance factory farmed animals. And so, Paul, I think for any of this argument to really take place, you sort of have to concede to a certain worldview in a certain position which is essentially we're not going to be able to convince the world to go vegan in a reasonable amount of time and so the author takes a position that factory farming is likely to continue in the short-term future 
but not necessarily saying that they think this is like the best long-term goal or like the best possible outcome. So it's sort of arguing for this genetic disenhancement as sort of an immediate alleviation of pain and suffering while still working to end factory farming in general. And so this isn't like what would be called the best possible outcome. It's not like Jonathan's envisioning a future a hundred years from now where it's just all these, you know, genetically disenhanced sort of sacks of meat that are there being, you know, raised or harvested or whatever word you want to call it. Like that's not what is being argued for here. So I think it is important to make that distinction. I guess, I guess though, I, I feel the way about that kind of the same way I feel about welfare or like working towards welfare versus working towards abolition. Like it seems like that would be the argument that's made for any kind of welfare objective where it's kind of like, well, this isn't going to happen. Complete veganism isn't going to happen in any time soon. So let's work towards this stuff in the meantime. But I don't know. It just seems like genetic disenhancement would be such like a, a massive undertaking and such like a, a shift in production that I can't see it as a short term thing. Like I can't see companies willing to invest in something so radically different and but also just being like yeah we're gonna like this is something that we're just gonna do for a little bit like it seems like if they're gonna do that they're gonna be sure that this is something that they can do in the long term so i don't know i wouldn't put i wouldn't put all my eggs in that disenhanced basket yeah i do think that it seems like you know we read all those examples but none of them are really close to what's being described and it's hard to imagine this being perfected in a short, I mean, I would even say short being like 10 years, Yeah, maybe five, you know, we, I don't think that we could see this in five to 10 years, but I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, we're closer to this than we thought, but yeah, it it feels almost a little disingenuous to qualify this as a short term solution when we know that, you know, the issue is such an immense and important issue right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's go through these arguments, Paul. The first one was disability is intrinsically bad. Disenhancement causes disability for animals. Therefore, disenhancement is bad. I don't really want to spend too much time on this because um, I don't agree that disability is intrinsically bad. That's not an argument that I would make and feels like sort of a very ableist argument to make. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I definitely get the the point that Jonathan is trying to make because again like these three things that you just outlined those are the those are the the criticisms that they're supposing are going to be thrown at genetic disenhancement so i feel like if if in terms of like if that's the criticism that's thrown at this at genetic disenhancement like i get what they're trying to say about that but I do agree with you that it definitely seems ableist. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that could be like a pretty mainstream stance to take against it, but I don't feel like we need to waste much of our time on this particular point. Well, I will also I, I, I one thing that I thought of when I was reading through that argument, though, was the argument that Jonathan is making for disenhancement is that we would be taking away the pain that the animal is suffering. Jonathan's saying 
the reason why this is not disability and why this is disenhancement is because the animal is experiencing pain and we are taking away that pain. And that's why it's a good thing. But I think my, and when I was first reading this, I was like, yeah, I, I get that. I get what they're saying. There, there, there is pain and we're taking away pain and that's, that's a good thing. Right. But I feel like we're looking at it from a very, or that argument is looking at it from kind of an individual level. Like let's look at these individual chickens and this chicken is feeling pain and now they won't be feeling pain anymore. But I think if we kind of look at the animals as a whole, or in this case, chickens as a whole, like these animals can experience emotions, which are include good and bad emotions. And so is it really a positive thing to be taking away the animal's ability to experience those emotions? Because Jonathan's whole argument is saying like, no, I'm just taking away the bad things, but really they're taking away both the bad and the ability to have good, good experiences, you know? Well, I think that, that Jonathan argues that, that situationally you couldn't have the same specific, Oh, it's definitely good to remove this ability because an animal that's out living free in a field somewhere. I don't think Jonathan would say, that you should genetically disenhance that animal because then you are taking away their ability to feel joy and and happiness and whatnot. But we know that an animal that's in one of these intense agricultural operations, that they have no chance of feeling joy ever. So it's almost like what you're, the argument you're making is a moot point because they're never going to feel those things regardless. We're, we're not robbing them of the ability to feel joy because they're never going to feel it inside of this industry. Well, then I would be interested to hear what Jonathan's response would be if they were asked, okay, well, why don't we do this to to humans as well? And like, why can't we just do this to humans? And now we have like all these humans that can do all these things and it doesn't matter what we do to them because they can't feel anything. And I feel like the argument against that would be exactly what I just said, which is like, oh, no, well, we're robbing them from their capability of feeling these joys and pains. And if that's your argument, and that's the only argument you can make about the difference between, like, why that's bad for humans, but why it's okay for, for chickens, I feel like it's just a very, it is a very speciesist argument. And I, I feel like that that's not good enough. Like, it's not good enough to just say, well, we can't do this to humans because we're humans, but it's okay to do this to chickens, you know? Well, well, again, I think it's a situational difference. I don't know. This just reminds me of like, <laughs> it reminds me of Blade Runner, where you have this whole line of androids, essentially, and like, what are the ethics surrounding that? But what, what if that was, what if they weren't androids? What if they were just humans where we took out their capability of feeling pain? And now we're using them as like a workforce. That would be bad. Well, that's the thing is that the, this this piece doesn't ever say that it would then make factory farming good. It doesn't say, oh, we removed the pain and everything's cool now. It still takes a position that factory farming is bad. It just makes it less bad. 
But why couldn't Jonathan's arguments be then used to to construct new industries? Because like I get what I get what they're saying, which is like, well, this is a thing that it's happening and it thinks that it's happening, but it's gonna happen. So let's do this thing about it. But like I feel like that's not a good argument against starting something new using those same the same techniques that Jonathan is proposing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, why couldn't we, like, why couldn't we then start this, this human disenhancement and, and, and why isn't that okay because of what Jonathan is saying? Yeah, I, I guess I don't think that Jonathan would argue that it would be okay. Like it's like like if there was already humans in a specific situation and you could disenhance them then that's better than not disenhancing them, but but not why you wouldn't want to create a new industry in order to need to disenhance. I, I guess like this this just brings us to what I feel like, Andy, we definitely both agree on, although I should not speak for you, but <laughs> what I feel like we definitely both agree on, which is like this is not the this is not the the, the thing that we should be putting so much time and effort into the thing that we should be putting so much time and effort into is dismantling th- the industry that is bad which Jonathan fully admits that that this is not a good thing agriculture well they're just saying like agricultural uh, uh, industrial agriculture is not a good thing i think we would uh, argue that any animal agriculture is not a good thing but at least Jonathan we and ourselves and Jonathan can agree that Industrial agriculture isn't a good thing, but I think we dis- we would disagree that what we should do- we would disagree with what we should do about that. And instead of just accepting, instead of accepting it, we would you know fight against it. Well, so uh, yeah, I honestly I don't know how Jonathan would feel about say animals coming from a small local family farm where animals arguably have a much better life, whereas you and I would not agree with the consumption and use and exploitation of those animals, maybe Jonathan would. I, I honestly do not know. So I, so I think that there's definitely some, probably some big philosophical differences, but that doesn't prevent us from parsing out the finer points of this specific solution, Band-Aid, whatever it is, for factory farming. I agree. I definitely agree, and and I do definitely think that Jonathan would have different views about, say, small farms than we would. Because, well, at the, at the towards the end, Jonathan says disenhancement prevents us from creating sentient beings only to exploit them for our own needs, and it also does not stop us from creating sentient beings when they are able to have worthwhile lives as pets or for conservation. So just the fact that they threw in there like, Oh, th- this animal is living a worth, a worthwhile life as a pet for us. It's still kind of like that example is still like, yes, this, this animal can still live their worthwhile life, fulfilling our needs. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I definitely think that I would not be surprised if, if this author is someone that does consume animal products. Yeah, it's entirely possible. So let's move on to argument two now. Uh, Argument two is that essentially disenhancement doesn't solve factory farming. 
So I'll read a little bit from from how Jonathan sort of surmises this objection, which says, even with the ability to feel pain, factory farm animals consistently injure themselves as a result of their inhospitable and dangerous living conditions. Factory farming with disenhancement is still deeply unsettling, but our intuitions about the inherent badness of bodily harm are misguided in a context where pain is a near constant feature of conscious experience and has little practical use. Disenhancement does not make factory farming morally sound, but its insufficiency in this regard is not a reason to avoid changing the system to eliminate pointless suffering in the short term. I guess, like, I agree. I agree with this this <laughs> this thing that Jonathan is saying, but I agree with Jonathan that disenhancement isn't necessarily the same as saying factory farming is okay in the same way that... I would say that some welfare, you know, some some things that welfare proponents put forward isn't necessarily condoning, although sometimes I think it is, but it's not necessarily condoning the practice. It's just trying to make, I get what they're doing, is trying to make things a little bit better for the animals. Like, so I agree. I don't think it's the way to go about solving this issue, but... I think I agree with the idea that they're putting forward in this argument. Yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of arguing situationally because it's, it's sort of the example that it set before, before I started talking about this was, you know, that there are, are humans that have conditions that don't allow them to feel pain, but it's still like a harm to them when they do feel pain, you know, like pain serves a biological function for us, a, like a evolutionary function where if we get burned, we touch a hot stove, we know to stop touching that stove to where it would continue to harm us. And that like that's so that's like a bad thing when these humans can't feel pain, but that given this situation that these animals are in, they're going to feel this pain no matter what. And their ability to feel pain doesn't serve a biological function because in this situation, they're unable to escape that pain. So essentially that's still saying that it's like, it's still evil because harm is happening to these animals, even if they can't feel it. Like, how do you feel about that? Again, it's like, I, I agree with what Jonathan is saying, but I don't, I think it's, it's going about solving this issue the wrong way. Like, I think, again, we both agree, Jonathan and myself both agree that this is a bad thing that's going on, but I don't think that, I I feel like, what they're doing is just kind of like sugarcoating, not, not sugarcoating, but it's like putting a nice filter over a shitty thing that's happening rather than eliminate rather than working to eliminate it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question, Paul, because this is not the specific objection that I thought this argument number two was going to lead to, but the essentially saying, you know, disenhancement doesn't solve factory farming. Let me ask you this question. If there was animals that, that act the way animals do, except they can't feel any pain, say we could perfectly genetically engineer those animals, would there still be a moral issue with factory farming? Like if, if factory farming existed as it does right now, except zero animal suffering had to happen to make that industry thrive, do you, ha- do you feel like there's a moral objection to that otherwise? So are you talking about like factory farming uh what's the what's like the the sea creature that that 
doesn't have a nervous system and like doesn't actually feel anything like oysters is oysters, that what it is or yeah i mean like oysters is honestly like that's kind of where this whole thing kind of leads me to think about the implications of eating an oyster but uh yeah like say it's well i don't know it's different because i guess what i'm sort of getting at is there would still be a big pollution issue yeah and i guess i would be more inclined to agree with it if that was the case like if it was something like oysters but i think where i find a lot of issue with this is that we're taking something and changing we're changing it to suit our needs and like that's one of the big issues that i take with all this is that it's like it's it's just another example of how something isn't the way we want it to be so we we change it instead of not doing it we figure out a way to change it to so it it can suit our needs in this case it's chickens like they they like oh those pesky chickens are always are always pecking each other like why can't they just stop pecking each other so it's really easy for us to farm them so we got to do this thing to change them and i feel like that's that's not a good standard to live by like if if something else that's not us isn't the way that we want it to be we're allowed to do whatever we want to it so that it benefits us so i I, like i think it's still bad like that now the the issue that or the 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 situation that you're putting forward i think is different where if it's if it's something or if it's an animal where they naturally are like that I think I would have less of an issue with that if it was like somewhere between a plant and an oyster, you know, I, I do think I would have less and less of an issue with it because it's not us changing them. I like you were pointing out, I think the issue would then be, is this damaging to the environment or any of those other non animal related issues about why factory farming is terrible. So I think those issues would still be there. But I would think Jonathan. I think Jonathan would argue like, "Well, we already knew that factory farming is bad." So, I'm not saying it's. He's not saying they're not saying it's. It's a good thing. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think that there's probably a number of reasons why factory farming is immoral. And it, and again, we're using the term factory farming because that's sort of the epitome of the, the worst of this whole thing. But obviously, as vegans, we're opposed to any animal use, regardless of how big or small the operation is. But, you know, especially with factory farming, like even if the pain is removed from the equation, you still have the issue of all of the waste runoff and and pollution that comes from that and all of the land usage. And like, let's assume that whatever weird plant oyster hybrid thing is still takes the same amount of grain and water inputs and all of those things. All of those are things that negatively impact the environment and thus other animals as well. So even if it's not the pain being felt specifically by the animals in this operation, I think it still does have negative impact. So, so yeah, I, I think that there still are issues. I don't think that disenhancement would, if we could magically snap of our finger, create all these animals that feel no pain and have no perception of the world around them, there would still be tons of issues with the factory farming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well put, Andy. All right. Argument number three, and I think this is a big one that we talk about. This is something we talk a lot about with welfare reforms, which is essentially saying that genetic disenhancement would prolong factory farming. So I'm going to read a kind of long section from this, this essay here. 
This argument correctly sheds light on the exploitive and selfish motivations of factory farm owners and scientists in their employment, and it is unfortunate that disenhancement would reduce suffering, but also may be in the interest of an exploitive system. However, this unfortunate aspect is no imperative against disenhancement. In reckoning with this issue, the unlikelihood of factory farm practices changing in the very near future must be recognized. Vast amounts of people in developing countries are coming to be able to afford meat for the first time, and many will believe that it is their right to demand factory farm products just as those in the developed world have done for decades. In the developed world, vegetarians make up a small portion of total consumers, and cheap factory farm products are appealing to many people who have to get by on lower incomes. Even if disenhancement leads to reduced moral criticism of factory farming, it is highly likely that demand will remain buoyant. In advocating for the disenhancement of factory farm animals, we recognize that factory farming is likely to continue and hope that our arguments persuade those people who are determined to produce and consume factory farm products. In the meantime, we can voice opposition to factory farming practices in general and search for alternatives. We don't need to conduct this search whilst animals suffer. All right, Paul. I th- this is like, yeah, one of our big criticisms of certain welfare measures is that it essentially gets the, the general public more comfortable with exploiting animals. And mm-hmm. like think about how, you know, some of the, the biggest tools that are used by a lot of animal advocacy groups and activists are the footage of animals experiencing pain and, and living these horrible lives. And that's that's taking that away. And it, it, I, I could see a lot of people going, well, what's what's wrong with this? Like they can't suffer. We've taken away the argument of look how badly they suffer. And would it be a lot harder for people to condemn factory farming if the animals are sort of their pain is taken out of the equation like this? I, I totally think it would make the jobs of vegan advocates more difficult because if people are already buying into like happy farms and stuff like that, I can only imagine that most people would be a hundred percent on board with this stuff. And, and especially because, you know, like a lot of times people are just, I think people are just looking for a reason to be okay with, with something. If they have any sort of, uh, you know, they're having their, their consciences, like they're in a dilemma. They're looking for a way to, to say that it's okay to do the thing that they want to do because it, it tastes good. So I think that this would absolutely give them, that fuel they would need to be like, oh yeah, it's I I am a hundred percent okay with this, and I am not changing my mind about it. Yeah, yeah, I I I don't know, I I don't know what I make of this argument that acknowledges that it would prolong an unethical system, but that like, well, it's essentially saying we have to admit that this system will continue, and if it's going to continue, we might as well do the thing that will alleviate the most amount of suffering. Yeah. So, you know, and I don't know. I mean, is it selfish of us as activists to say, well, no, we want things to be as bad as possible until it stops? I don't know. I, I mean, like, I would still, even though the the, the suffering is being, the, the quantity of suffering is being reduced, you know, it's like I would still argue that that by, it is morally wrong to, modify these animals in this way so it's like i would argue that it's still it's still wrong because of that so yes the 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 number of suffering if you can measure suffering with a quantity the number is lower but that doesn't mean that it's it's okay 
Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's just saying we're presenting two choices and like the realistic choice is that factory farming will continue. So if it's going to continue, shouldn't we do this thing now for immediate pain relief? I don't know. I, I'm just not a fan of the whole, like it's either this or this, you know? Yeah. I, I don't like, know. I, I like... think many would say that Jonathan is being very realistic. I, I, you know, I hear that all the time, even from vegan advocates. Well, the world's not going to go vegan. And if they're not going to go vegan, we should educate them on X, Y, Z on how to make like responsible choices and all, all of those things. Well, Andy, can I can I throw something at you? Can I take a little sidestep and and hit you with something? Hit me, baby. Okay. One more time. One more time. So I I had mentioned Paul B. Thompson a little bit earlier. He had he had talked about the 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 idea of intentionally blinding chickens, and I had found another article that he had written for nanoethics. I'm assuming that's a journal, a scientific journal in 2008 where he put forward two different ways of disenhancement, two different ways to disenhance in this case, chickens. One way would be to take chickens as they are right now and remove something from them that would make the, you know, in this, this is what Jonathan is arguing, basically. You're taking chickens as they are now, and you're removing their abilities to to feel pain, uh, whether that's through genetics or some sort of, like, nanomechanical intervention in cellular or neurological processes, as Paul Thompson puts it. But the, uh, so that's, that's kind of, I feel like what Jonathan is, is going, is going towards. You're producing these like, you know, headless chickens that can't feel, feel pain. The other approach though, which is called the build up approach. Let me read what Paul has to say about this. They say here, researchers work with cells in vitro, designing scaffolding and other mechanisms that might be produced according to instructions encoded in DNA to wind up with an organism that yields the animal products, meat, milk, and eggs, currently produced using pigs, cows, and chickens. This approach might truly yield a quasi-living system that might even involve some elements of animate neural control of organ functions or muscle tension, but without a central nervous system or brain. Andy, what this person is basically describing is clean meat, is building meat without the actual animal. Yeah, I think we've we've been tiptoeing around the fact that clean meat is on the horizon, and that seems like a way better alternative to, <laughs> to this particular thing. It... It does, but Andy. So when I when I thought about clean meat, I had like the clean meat epiphany during reading this whole thing and being like, "Oh, well, clean meat basically nullifies all this." But then the other crot, the other crot, the other thought crossed my mind: like, what? Where's the line drawn between where when it's clean meat and where it's a disenhanced chicken? Like, what is the difference between clean meat and a disenhanced chicken? Because if we were producing a chicken, a disenhanced chicken that was like headless and had no digestive tract and and was just kind of what one of the other real early scientists kind of put forward as, you know, like this, this 
this shell of a chicken body with all these tubes and, and being like a mechanical heart and stuff, basically just being kept alive to produce eggs. Where does that, like, where does it cross the line between being clean meat that we're growing and being a, a, a chicken that we're disenhancing? Like, is it just, if it looks like a chicken, then it's disenhancement. Whereas if it's just cells being grown in the lab, then it's clean meat. Yeah, that's a man. That's a good question, Paul. I think that well, well, like one when I think about that first option, which seems like, do you seem do you get the impression that it's saying a chicken is born and then an, like an operation is performed on that chicken before it's sent off to the factory farm? I think it could be that, but I think it could also be like a genetic modification, which would be maybe before the chicken's born. Yeah, or like s- somehow s- that combined with selective breeding. So, so in one situation, the the being is born like hatched out of an egg, and the other one, the being is just sort of grown in a lab. Yes, seems yes. to be like a pretty big distinction, and and maybe for some people that would be the line, because yeah, I mean the the idea of like chickens getting born and then having some procedure done seems horribly ineffective and inefficient in time and money and Mm -hmm. cost and and all of that. So I guess we can throw that out the window. Uh, As far as the line between like the sack of chicken that's grown with organs, but has no central nervous system or brain or anything. And the difference between that and clean meat, I honestly don't know other than it seems like growing the organs and all of that and, and, pumping in the nutrients that need to keep those things going seems like it would also be very inefficient compared to clean meat, which essentially can be grown like, like a, someone brews beer, like just like in a big vat somewhere. It doesn't seem like, like the chicken would have to be like this individual thing with inputs going into it. And it seems like, you know, I guess it's not getting to your question of the ethical differences, but it seems like clean meat would be a much more, efficient way to grow the meat like i i fully agree with you but why is it that it that i'm so in favor of clean meat but if instead of just growing slabs of meat they grew something that resembled a chicken and then they killed it like why is that so yucky to me why does that seem wrong to me but just growing the the chicken breast, for instance, is okay. It, like it, again, it it feels like to me the difference is that like as soon as it looks like as soon as this product looks like a chicken, I'm like, oh no 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 no, stop! Like cut, cut that out. But if it's just like an a singular organ or something like that or a singular muscle, that seems okay to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because like if I'm being totally honest. If if an if a being could be bred that like once born or hatched just comes out and is never aware of anything, never aware of existence, never aware of any feeling, I don't know, maybe has some mobility, maybe doesn't. It's it's hard for me to find an ethical reason to be against that. That's like, do you have that, one? That's disenhancement though, right? That you're what you're describing is disenhancement. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's honestly putting aside the fact that it just seems horribly ineffective and it would be time consuming to get there when when clean meat is coming around the corner. I don't really know if I have a strong ethical argument against it. 
because so much of our, our groundwork is laid upon the idea that like, well, animals should be given rights or consideration according to their needs. And if it's just this nonsentient thing that's halfway between an animal and a plant, do we have any argument against that other than sort of, I guess the origin of that beings being coming from an animal and like, you know, like we could say those rights are being violated that way, but I don't know. Like what, if someone said to you, what if an animal can't feel pain? What if the animal enjoys pain even like, what would be the ethical argument against not hurting that animal? I think, I think the argument is that, we are we have we've created this thing and and it's not i'm not gonna use the word natural but it's not it's not how this living thing is supposed to be and we've we've altered this we've we've put our grimy human hands on the genetic code of this of this animal and we've we've created we've turned we've turned them into something that that that's useful for us but has no purpose for for the animal or the animal as a whole. Like I feel like we're still we're using the animal and not maybe in in this case not in the sense of the specific animal, but we're using that species of animal. We're changing that species so that it fits our needs. And I think that that's why I would be against that. Is it's not cuz I agree with you Andy that on an individual animal Per animal basis you're right it doesn't it doesn't matter for that animal because they can't they have no awareness and they can't feel anything so yeah it has nothing to do with that animal but i feel like it's it's our changing of that animal it's our changing of the way that that animal is into this thing that can't feel anything i feel like that's where i'm ethically against it because i like and again like I was saying before, like I think most people would be against this if we did this to humans. So why why can we do this to animals? And I, I don't I don't think it's a sufficient enough argument to just say, well, this is the way things are, and that's why we can do it. Let me say, I guess it's it's hard for me to argue against it, but this argument sort of paints this picture that it's either or, and and as you've already pointed out many times, there are other options there. And so maybe if it was something where humans had a requirement to consume animals, maybe if that was the situation, if there is no other alternative, maybe this would be the best possible solution. But even even Jonathan, even the author, doesn't think this is the best possible long-term solution. And so I think that to the, to the question, our main discussion question was, should vegans advocate for this? It seems like it's a pretty firm no. Even even if you feel like ethically it's okay, even if you feel like you're having a hard time finding an ethical argument against doing it, it still feels like as a vegan, there are so many other solutions that this one just seems sort of ridiculous. Yeah, and and I wish that because this paper that Jonathan wrote was written very recently... I wish that clean meat was a part of this this paper because I like not and I'm not even saying Jonathan arguing for clean meat. I think that for this award winning paper, Jonathan should have addressed why 
this is uh, this is better than clean meat. Like I think in 2018 we should tack on number four, objection number four, which is like, well, if we have clean meat, why isn't that better? Isn't that better than genetic disenhancement? It seems one, it seems closer to being a reality Two, It seems like it's going to tackle all the things, all the issues that, that genetic enhancement would tackle. And then some, because it's also going to tackle factory farming, which Jonathan says admits is bad. So if we can do something that's going to produce the same result is more realistic and will get rid of, or will, will, help to eliminate factory farming potentially i feel like jonathan in, in order for me to be on board with disenhancement jonathan should tell me why i shouldn't instead promote clean meat well let me ask you this paul do you think the general public is going to be more willing to eat clean meat or an animal that's been genetically disenhanced i think clean meat because because, 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 even though people are willing to, even though we're talking about, we're talking about carnists that are willing to eat animal flesh, I think that many of those people who, who eat animals are like, don't want to see the animals that they're eating. They don't want to have, they don't want to. I think many people would be uncomfortable if not would refuse to, you know, like watch the animal being killed in front of them. So I think that clean meat kind of lets them continue to do the thing that they're eating. But now they know that there was never a, there was never a chicken. Like there was never an animal that died for this thing versus genetic disenhancement where there's still this, this tangible creature that is still dying and yes they're definitely going to feel people that are eating this are definitely going to feel better about it because they can be like oh well they didn't feel any pain but there's still this reminder that it it is that they are a living thing and i think that that fact alone would make people more likely to eat clean meat than the genetically enhanced chickens disenhanced not enhanced yeah i think i'd have to agree with that i feel like if they're both gonna feel like some like weird sci-fi thing that that the clean meat certainly seems much more favorable like the to me the genetic enhancement just reminds me of all these like blade runner like i brought up before it just reminds me of these sci-fi movies where it's like we've created this 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 workforce and it's it's okay because they're not humans and it's okay to exploit them and then ultimately the 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 conclusion of the movie is it's not okay to exploit them so i like that's what it reminds me of so it reminds me of something that people typically have an ill favor towards anyways you know what i mean for in in terms of humans in terms of humans well you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of the matrix how so because in the Matrix, all these humans are just in these goo pods and they're hooked up to life support systems and they're being harvested by these aliens or whatever the, the creatures or technology is that's doing that whole thing. And they're they're just in this dream world. They don't know that they're actually being exploited. They just think that they're going about their daily lives. And so it reminds me of that. Like that's what these sort of sacks of, of flesh would be. Like they'd just be 
hooked up to some tubes maybe and and grown and they don't know what what's happening to them yeah you know and there there was a it was a joke article i forget where we found it it was a while ago and we thought maybe it was serious at first but it was one where it was like someone was developing a, a vr headset for chickens yeah 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 so that so that they wouldn't know that they're in a factory farming situation mm-hmm. And it would just be like a simulation of them out in a field and pecking at bugs and all that stuff. And it, it was not real. It was it was sort of meant to be kind of satirical in terms of this exact thing. Like, how far will we go to continue to exploit animals? Why can't we just stop eating animals, you know? So I guess that, that was kind of like the Matrix. That's like the farmed animal version of the Matrix yeah. there. Yeah. I feel like it's... The I, I know that you are not trying to say that this is a one to one analogy with the Matrix, but I feel like where the the analogy maybe falls short is that the people are still experiencing something, even though it's like this fantasy dreamland. Whereas with the genetic enhancement, I feel like there's just nothing going on in inside the 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 chick. I was going to say inside the chicken brain, but I feel like there would be no brain. So. Some might say that's favorable though, because I mean, you say fantasy dreamland. It is a, you know, that to me that almost seems like a positive thing. But like Neo in that film, he's just working a boring office job. So some might even argue it'd be better to feel nothing <laughs> than to feel the highs and the lows of human <laughs> of, existence. Of working at all. an office job. <laughs> <laughs> all right, someone. Now I just can't get like a, a an image of a Neo chicken out of my head. Someone <laughs> like dodging yeah, bullets yeah, and stuff. Yeah, wearing like a a sick '90s goth trench coat cyberpunk thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paul, you know, going into this, I actually wasn't thinking that I would have any good arguments to not do this, aside from the fact that it seems like there's better, there are better alternatives. But I think you've laid out some pretty good groundwork for why why it's it's unethical regardless Thank you. i appreciate that andy i i it took me a while to get to some of these because the the first time i read this the second time i read it through i was like this feels icky to me but i can't say why but i i, I had to reflect on it a lot um we had this week where we prepare, where we could prepare our arguments for this so i think that that helped yeah yeah i mean because you never know when it's something that just sort of feels wrong like you sort of have this gut feeling that something's wrong but you can't really explain why it's wrong and i guess i don't know i mean like part of me is like yeah you know the question is not can they reason or can they whatever but can they suffer i'm like yeah if you remove the suffering from the equation i'd feel like i don't it'd be hard for me to have an ethical objection to consuming those animals but i think there are plenty of reasons to object it's funny like you say that but in, cause, so Andy and myself looked at a lot of we, – we tried to find a lot of different articles either relating to this specific paper or just genetic disenhancement in general. And there were a couple, Andy, where I saw and, – and a lot of them were these like super like philosophic and these professors of philosophy discussing this sort of thing. So they were using these like very professionally philosophic debate techniques. And one of them did lay out that it was like – an argument could be made that's like your gut instinct is that you are against this and it was like that's okay like that's a that's that's okay as an and as, as a philosophical argument was that you have an instinct <laughs> that that this is wrong for some reason and it basically i don't remember what it was but it was like there's a philosophical term for that and it's like it's an okay 
<laughs> argument to say like i have a gut instinct against this all right well I, I guess we'll leave it off there this is a fun one and uh you know we'd love to know what all the beautiful beardos are thinking about this so feel free to send us an email thebeardedvegans at gmail.com and we we look forward to hearing what you think about this because i feel like i don't know i'm sure there's a million different angles that we've missed on this mm-hmm. one paul so all, all you beardos are always so good at filling in the cracks that we miss yeah, yeah so send us in those those questions i i'm this was a good one, Andy. We should do more of these philosophical ones more often. Yeah, so send in your philosophical conundrum, and we will do our best to parse it out. All right, Andy, what do you got coming up? Uh, June 2nd, I will be at the Vegandale Food and Drink Festival in Houston, Texas. Paul, the same day, June 2nd, you'll be at the Lancaster Veg Fest, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That I will. June 9th, Paul's going to be at the Philly Veg Fest in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And June 8th through the 10th, I'll be at the Asheville Vegan Fest, Asheville, North Carolina. June 16th, I'll be at the Tri-State Veg Fest in Edison, New Jersey. And then June 30th, I'll be at the Vegandale Food and Drink Fest in Chicago, Illinois. And all of those events find me or Paul behind the Compassion Company table. Look for the vegan shirts. Look for the unicorn with the rainbow hair. You'll probably find us. (laughs) And uh, if you want all those dates, deets, and links for those and many more all the way through November, you can just head over to CompassionCo.com. This is CompassionCo.com. And, Paul, I actually recently and maybe for the first time ever actually updated the events tab on our our webpage, TheBeardVegans.com. So all of our live podcasts and a few of my speaking engagements are now listed on there. So you can head over there if you're looking for the next uh, live podcast taping. Can't wait for that. So, Paul, I I think that like one of the big pieces missing from this discussion is we didn't find a lot of information on exactly how they would perform this genetic disenhancement. And there was a number of studies done. I think the one that seemed the most promising and the most interesting is they actually, they started out by hypnotizing the chickens first. Mm -hmm. And the way they would hypnotize these chickens is they had this loop that would play on repeat for hours until it sort of lulled them into a sense of serenity. And uh, the loop that they played was just the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. 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 Both the San Diego Marine Park and its sister park in Orlando saw a double-digit drop. <clears throat> a double-digit... No, nah, it's not even... <laughs> that's, not a, that's not an occasion for Ruby Dog at all. <laughs> Saul Goodman from Breaking Bad? <laughs> I said it's all good, but you can hear whatever you want to hear. Andy. I mean, his name is based off. It's it's Saul Goodman. Oh. I don't know. Did you watch Breaking Bad? I did not. All right. <laughs> this conversation is over. <laughs> Make a quick note.
time after time. And <laughs> time after Tim. Outro. Time time after Tim, a tiny Tim cover of Time After Time. <laughs> yeah. So anything's possible, including you moving to Stellarware. <laughs> and right. on that great transition. That wasn't really a transition at all, but let's move on into our main discussion. But before that, we got a, a couple quick shout-outs to give to our new Patreon donors. So, of course... So, of course... <laughs> you know, we haven't had much of a philosophical discussion in, in quite a while. Andy, I really need to go pee. Is it cool if I go pee real quick before we get started into this? Yeah, sure. All right, let's get down to the nitty gritty, Paul. Let's get Kimro, Kimro, <laughs> Uno. All right, H cuties. Um. <laughs> so that the chickens or the hens don't don't peck each other to deck to deck. Don't pe- peck that deck. <laughs> well, can I say one thing about it, Andy? No. Okay. Moving on. Point two. No. Um, <laughs> Okay, so the, 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 the argument that Jonathan's making f- for disenhancement is that... <laughs> I is... forgot you could see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I'd be interested to hear what Jonathan's response would be to then ask... That was the, the worst phrase thing. And then the whole article concludes... Whilst, great, great use of whilst. (laughs) Disenhanced, not enhanced. Genetically enhanced chickens. Super powered. (laughs) Enhanced, enhanced. (laughs) The chickens just get in higher and higher definition each time. Yeah, send in your philosophical (laughs) conundrum. Your conundrum. (laughs) 